This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. And by the BET miniseries, The Book of Negroes. Based on the critically acclaimed novel by Lawrence Hill, The Book of Negroes is a universal story of loss, courage, and triumph. Starring Anjanou Ellis, Lyric Bent, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Lou Gossett Jr. The Book of Negroes, available now on DVD. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Bald Guys Fighting Edition. It's Wednesday, April 8th, 2015. On today's show, Furious 7 is the latest installment in the adrenaline and steroid cocktail known as the Fast and Furious movies. And then the casting director, who some say helped remake American movies. And finally, public shaming in the age of the internet. Have we revived the barbarism of the pillory and the stocks for the digital age? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Okay, well, I'm going to only add to the embarrassed silence surrounding our karaoke excursion by saying nothing about it. Let's move on. Um, oh, wait, I actually fast- have a follow-up on what? karaoke. Can I make it very quickly? I was going to do this in endorsements, but as long as yeah, you mentioned it. of course. It, I got a tweet from a former student of mine who reminded me that the story I told about doing karaoke with my boyfriend's friends in 2002 was not the first time I did it. I had completely blanked out that in 1999, when I was teaching a Portuguese class in San Francisco, on the day of the last class, I marched all my students to some kind of Brazilian karaoke bar, and we all sang Brazilian karaoke together. So your first time doing karaoke, you instigated it? I think it may have been my students who told me about the place. I'm not sure. There was well, there was this wonderful student, the guy who wrote me about this, named Eric Crawford, who was one of my best students, who wrote me this, this note. And I think he was the one who maybe frog-marched us to the Brazilian karaoke place. And as he pointed out in our Twitter conversation, I was writing my dissertation at the time and probably had my head elsewhere. But it is, in fact, true that I had begun on karaoke back in 1999, earlier than I remembered. And I'm sure that I enjoyed it that night, too. I wish there was a Brazilian karaoke place in New York. If there is, somebody please tell me about it. I love the fact that the karaoke segment, I think, is the only segment in the five, six, seven-year history of the show that rolled back the odometer on our Facebook likes. Right? I mean, did you notice it was like tick, 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 we, minus three, minus five. You mean we were unliked down. more than ever before? Yeah, I think it was our, our most unliked. That is not a data-supported assertion, Steve, but uh, fair enough. Paging Dan Engbro. Oh, before we, uh, before we start, Steve, can I fill people in on what our Slate Plus segment is? Yes, you may. Okay, this is the week. Finally, it's the season finale of television. We've all been dying to talk about 
Breaking Bad. <laughs> We're going to take a time travel back two or three years or whenever it was. And now that Steve and Dana have watched the finale of Breaking Bad, we will discuss the finale of Breaking Bad and maybe a little bit about TV show finales generally, since I've been thinking about them in gearing up for the Mad Men TV Club's final stretch. I like that we're just spitting in the face of timeliness and news pegs and just talking about Breaking Bad in 2015. Maybe that's what, maybe the Slate Plus segment should just be time travel. We should just be like, there's this great new sitcom, Full House. Let's discuss the gender dynamics within that family. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Moving on. All right. The Fast and Furious franchise debuted uh, way back in 2001. What began as an homage to the Southern California hot rod culture has turned into a bathosm bombast soap epic. Along the way, converting pecs, sex, and wrecks into billions of dollars at the box office. It has also, of course, seen the death of one of its beloved leads, Paul Walker. Before we talk about the latest uh, installment, Furious 7, let's, uh, let's listen to a clip from it. If you get the God's eye for me, I've already got authorization for you to use it until you get Shaw. You go from the hunted to the hunter, and there's no place on earth Shaw can hide from you. More importantly, you and your family don't go to any more funerals. You get Ramsey, you get the God's eye, you get Shaw. Well, that's the wind-up and the pitch. Now that I've given you this incredibly sensitive and highly classified information, what do you think, Toretto? I think you already know what I'm gonna tell. Good. But it'll be my way. And my crew. I assumed you might say that, which is why I've taken the liberty of gathering your team. So as the music swells, we see two, I think, like Chevy Suburbans pull up with Toretto's crew, which is his like lovely multi-ethnic team of car thieves and race drivers and hackers and whoever they are uh, to help get the God's eye. The, I love that the MacGuffin is called the God's Eye in this. It's, it's some kind of a, a tracking device. It's sort of like an all-powerful eye that can track any human on Earth and find where they are. But the entire time, I just kept picturing the thing kids make at camp that's two popsicle sticks with yarn wound around it. <laughs> and that, that was what they were chasing over the globe for. <laughs> that would make a, a much better movie than this. All right, Dana, you weren't even born when the first one came out. Uh, how have you, over the years, attached psychically to this franchise? I believe, well, let me say, first of all, that this was Julia's idea for a topic, so she's going to have to carry the day on the cultural significance of Fast and Furious. I honestly almost stepped out of the screening last night and texted you guys, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere around minute 140. Oh, my God. (laughs) But let me jump in and just quickly say, Julia, you only owe me a half an apology because I walked out of this movie halfway through. Oh, all right. Or maybe you owe me twice one apology. Uh, I don't know how that formula works exactly. It's the first time in the history of the show I haven't completely consumed the consumable. Oh, well, now I think you owe me $70 million then, right? I think Steve owes us going to the movies and watching the rest of Fast and Furious 7. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> go do it. And then, we'll, and then come back and then we'll finish this segment. You know, in my defense, this movie made $140 million at the box office. This this movie is a massive cultural phenomenon that deserves reckoning with however terrible this particular installment turned out to be. But this is all a lot of preamble to Dana. Tell us your history with this franchise. Oh, well, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this franchise, actually, because... Um, because this is sort of the moment where it seems to have reached critical mass, and this is the most successful one so far, correct? Certainly the most successful launch of one. I guess it began in 2001, which was some time ago now. This has been sprawling over the whole first 15 years of the century now. I believe I've seen only three of these. The second one, Tokyo Drift, I saw before I was a film critic. And the fifth one, Fast and Furious 5, I guess it was just called, um, I did review for Slate. And now here with number seven, we're just talking about it on the show. So I can't claim a deep well of knowledge of these characters, but I do have some recognition of the world that they inhabit, which I agree with Wesley Morris, who wrote a beautiful thing about the Fast and Furious series and sort of why it's had the huge popularity it's had. I do agree that what this series is about has less to do with the individual characters or even the airborne vehicles than it does with the world that they inhabit and this sort of friendship and alternate family that the group, the car thief gang, forms. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Wesley Morris's point in the Boston Globe, I think, off of the fifth movie, that this is like the most progressive racial force in America, I think might have been what he called it, that the deposits this world where there's a vast multi-ethnic cast, but the movie is not fundamentally about race. And that if you look at movies that are at the top of the box office, if there are any characters of color in them, they tend to be movies that are very explicitly like reckoning with America's racial turmoil, as opposed to just being like, here's a bunch of people all different colors, doing stuff with cars. Yeah, as Wesley puts it wonderfully, usually when there's a movie with a white guy and a black guy, it's a movie about a white guy and a black guy. And race is not an issue. Racing is the issue in these movies. Right. And so anyway, I thought that was a nice lens through which to look at these movies. And I genuinely have loved... A couple of them. I think I thought the first one was super fun. I've seen the first one. I loved the fifth one. They're just like spectacularly goofy. So I thought it'd be fun to see the seventh one and talk about it with you guys. But this movie is so bad. I mean, it might be the worst movie that we've had to see for this show. And just like this utter disregard. I mean, there were just lines that were in the wrong order. Like there was no logic to any conversation. Yeah. All of the good stunts were in the trailer, which was a pretty great trailer, which may account for the big opening weekend. We'll see if the strength of the film holds. But like there are some pretty spectacular stunts. I'll only talk about the ones in the trailer, but there's like people driving out of helicopters to ambush a convoy on a like mountainous road in the Caucasus. By driving out of helicopters, let me let me state the helicopter is well above the ground. They're essentially free falling through the air. Oh, yeah, no, it's like a it's like a automotive skydiving sequence. Uh, and then there's also, also it's not a helicopter, it's a giant cargo jet. Okay. Yes. Thanks, Steve. I'm glad you can fact check the first scene of the movie. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, people are going to have this image in their head of like, how did you get six cars in a helicopter? You're right. You're right. Okay. It was a gigantic military style cargo jet. And then there's another scene where they like accelerated crazy car amid various towers, if like from skyscraper to skyscraper in Dubai somewhere, you know, so there's some amusing driving set pieces in the film, but the film is just has utter disregard for how people talk to one another. Like, it's just one cliche after another. Like, there's there's one great Vin Diesel retort where he's like, the prey becomes the hunter. You know, like, just every line is like some dumb movie line. Yeah. Often in order that makes no sense. And then there's also, and I think this, I mean, this is incredibly sad, but doesn't serve the movie well, because the franchise has to deal with the fact that Paul Walker... One of the stars died, I think, shortly after they filmed it. or while No, in it, the middle of filming. In the middle of filming it, there's a really heavy emphasis on the emotional bonds of this family and Paul Walker's ties to all of them. Um, I can understand the decision to emphasize that given the emotions surrounding his very tragic death in a car accident. But it does not serve the story well. Like the movie, it is, I think, Steve, you set it up as a soap opera. Like there is this sense of kind of camaraderie among the gang and and you get a sense of the history of their relationships but there was like too much story service in this movie there was too much like oh right. we, we get like there's this whole jaunt to Tokyo you know where they have a scene that's utterly pointless with some guy who I guess was in Tokyo Drift who like gives a crucial necklace from the past movie you know that was like extracted right. from a car wreck from another guy who died it's like they feel like the fans are really going to care that one guy didn't show up for this franchise so they make it that he yeah. died at the beginning and then there's like I mean it's for 15 minutes I don't know maybe it was only 7 minutes but we're like off in some freaking parking garage in Tokyo I also think there must have been a Tokyo racing sequence that got cut because the two characters meet each other and say like I hear he goes real fast and then later they're talking in a parking garage and they're like wow I didn't know you were that fast and it's like oh thank god <laughs> thank god we didn't see that other racing sequence I invite cinephiles to correct me on this but my first memory of a franchise be like later installments of a franchise becoming sentimental about earlier installments of a franchise were the Lethal Weapon movies and uh, I, I just remember Danny Glover and uh, Mel Gibson kind of reminiscing about things they did in the earlier movie. And I remember thinking, this is like a new phenomenon, this kind of within the context of no context, self-reflexive kind of nostalgia for having, which I think moviegoers feel sincerely, like they loved that first movie. And, you know, but this one is bathed in it. I mean, by the seventh iteration, you feel as though it's it's just kind of crawled into its own vat of, you know, hazy self-regard in a weird way. And, and, and it, so it just doesn't, move forward. And then it's like the writing, as you point out, Julia, is just howlingly prefabricated and clunky. I mean, it, you, you literally could reproduce this movie by having 
one character say, I'll see you in hell, and another one say, no, I'll see you in hell for two hours, <laughs> punctuated by two cars having a head-on collision from which the good guy emerges unscathed and the bad guy is incinerated. It, it, this franchise is totally critic-proof, so no one will care that I walked out. So let me give you the exact moment when I walked out. It used to be like James Bond movies set the bar in this regard. There used to be about five howling improbabilities, stunt improbabilities per movie. In FF, FF7, there are five per frame. It's It's gotten to that level. And the one that made me walk out was, you know, I think it's about a third of the way into the movie, maybe halfway through, through the movie. Vin Diesel's character has finally nabbed this high-value hacker, Ramsey, but he's totally cornered. He's got a semicircle of, you know, evil ninjas in souped up Escalades or, or whatever they are, like with a high caliber submachine guns. I mean, he's just totally outgunned, totally outmanned, totally surrounded. And on the other side of him, you know, is a sheer rocky 700 meter free fall into the abyss, right? And how's he going to get out of this one? And, and in fact, someone says, how's he going to get out of this one in case you somehow hadn't followed what was happening uh, to that moment? And, and how does he get out of it? First, he does a donut, right? <laughs> Always useful part of any evasive maneuver. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, which sends a dust storm into the you know windshields of these assassins, would-be assassins. And then he just points his car, Thelma and Louise-like, towards the abyss and guns it and just all he does to get away is just drive the car off the cliff. That's all he has to do. And it goes clang, crash, smash, crumple, bang, all the way down, Wild E. Coyote on steroids, down the entire fucking cliff and lands. And then the doors open and out come the two protagonists. And at that point, I said, if, if this is the level of suspense this movie is going to deliver, where in an impossible situation, you simply get out of it by doing the impossible and emerging impossibly unscathed, I'm sorry, I got better things to do with my night. By the way, that was like the opening of the movie, Steve. That's not the opening. That's <laughs> I, the opening took too long. In. That's the scene that should have been the opening of the movie. <laughs> and Steve, to your point that that crash scene was improbable, didn't you notice when they were in the garage getting ready for that mission that he asked for that car to be built with the all of the strength of the armored Humvee, but the, I, but I, the I, chassis of a race car. So, you know, they, they set it up. I reinforced the chassis, the I know, in order to keep the gooey caramel safe. I get it. But. <laughs> Although earlier in the movie, doesn't Vin Diesel accuse Jason Statham's villain of having ch- essentially cheated in one of their chicken game head-on collisions because he reinforced his chassis? Yeah, he's like, I hate your reinforced chassis. Reinforce my chassis. All right, well, okay, so let me walk it all back and completely rehabilitate the franchise, not that anyone gives a shit, but I was watching Duke, Wisconsin last night with a guy I'd never met before, a young guy working in an interesting way in the food trade in Brooklyn, and I was with a third party, I was sort of slagging on the movie and describing why I'd walked out of it, and all of a sudden this guy pipes up and says, I've seen all seven iterations of the movie on opening night. And he posited the most intelligent theory of the Fast and Furious movies one could possibly imagine. He said, he said, there's a spectrum, okay? And on the spectrum at one end is Die Hard and Roadhouse is on the other. And there's a perfect balance point between these two movies that is Point Break. And he said, you know, Point Break is, is just the absolute perfect balance between kind of winking, self-conscious kitsch and bloated effects action movie, self-important bombast. Uh, and he had me at Point Break. As soon as someone says Point Break, you know, I'm basically at the gooey caramel that is Steve Metcalf begins to drip and ooze. But anyway, he says that the first Fast and Furious movie is very close to hitting that perfect center balance point, that perfect equilibrium between kitchen bombast. And that's what hooked him from the beginning. So I am more than happy to go back you know, and via con Dios and go see that first one. I, I, I imagine it was a really inventive, totally original franchise. It's just, it's funny. What is it though, Julia, speculate, why did a franchise hit critical mass on its seventh installment? Well, it's not like it's been limping along. There's a reason they've made seven of these things. It's been a very lucrative franchise. It's been one of the highest grossing franchises of the decade. I get it, but we've passed the, first of all, it's its biggest opening, and we've passed over in decorous silence all six previous versions of this thing. But we felt motivated to see it, Julia, because you made an argument for it, which implied critical mass. Is it just the Paul Walker situation or something else? 
I don't know. I think there's something about the improbability of it. I mean, it's a little bit like the car that crashed off the cliff. You know, in some ways, Tokyo Drift has become the comical sequel coda the way Electric Boogaloo used to be. Like, I feel like if you're ever making fun of a sequel, you say, um, oh, Culture Gabfest 6 colon Tokyo Drift. And that's how you suggest that it's ludicrous that there's a sequel, right? In the same way that you used to do that. Dana's giving me the blankest stare. No, I'm just thinking of how annoying it is that Tokyo Drift itself was ripped off from the Japanese Yakuza movie Tokyo Drifter. So even the originality of that title was a complete rip. Yeah. I mean, the naming conventions of this franchise could be get their own segment. It's impossible to know what the name of any movie in the segment is because there is no convention. So this is actually called Furious 7. And I think, Dana, when you spoke earlier of reviewing Fast and Furious 5, I think that one was just called Fast 5. Like, anyway, it's just the car movie, right? You know, so there there was a sense that the first movie was good. The second couple kind of got ignored. And then with the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, They've just been successively huge, huge movies. And the fifth one also added The Rock. The Rock was not an original member of the crew. And, you know, he's quite a big star. I think Vin Diesel, I don't know. I mean, I think we should spend a little bit of time on Vin Diesel. Why is Vin Diesel so great? He's so great. I could spend so much time with him on on screen. Yeah, I mean, I want to come to the defense of the things that are endearing about these movies. And I think Vin Diesel is a huge, huge part of it. And the sort of uh, paterfamilias character that he plays, Dom Toretto, you know, this guy who is sort of a wise Buddhist mechanic who rules over his his crew with a gentle hand. And uh, and whose sister, they must have a pair of very dissimilar parents because, of course, the mountain-shaped Vin Diesel has a sister, Jordana Brewster, who weighs about 93 pounds and is this kind of gorgeous model. Anyways, and the way that they have formed this alternative family, right, the Paul Walker character, ends up marrying Vin Diesel's sister, which at first was a problem in the franchise, but now they've become like brothers. And in fact, this movie ends on kind of a pain to their, their brotherhood. And I think it is kind of Dom Toretto's character that holds the whole unlikely mask Yeah, I mean, you know, Tyrese Gibson plays a, like, loudmouth car thief and he's kind of the Falstaff character right yeah. he's, the, he's the guy who's who's a secret coward he's he's a goofball and then uh, Ludacris plays a thoughtful hacker type and I love Michelle Rodriguez in these movies like she just plays I mean talk about soap opera there's literally like an amnesia plot line it's been this going movie. on for two movies now the amnesia <laughs> problem <laughs> oh my if only God. she could remember her life the way she remembers how to drive Dana <laughs> Um, I do have to say it. I won't spoil it, but I love the very last line that Vin Diesel speaks to Michelle Rodriguez. It's actually wonderful. The kind of when they have their little romantic get together at the end. I'll I'll, I'll let you um, sit through all 140 <laughs> minutes. Steve, you missed out on that that jewel. Oh man, I'll never know, will I? Yeah, the performances are really warm and fun and. I don't know. There's just like a usually a lightness of touch to these movies that is part of what makes them work. And the leaden gloppiness of this one, I would not recommend. I would say if you have not seen these movies, go back and watch the first one or the fifth one. Okay, the movie is Furious 7. It's opening everywhere, including the inside of your own eyelids. Uh, So um, go ahead and see it one way or another and tell us uh, we're totally wrong about it. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we got? Our sponsor this week, Steve, is Harry's. Harry's delivers a superior shave. Steve, you use Harry's, right? These are the razors that get sent to you by mail. Absolutely. I use uh, Harry's lovingly. It's a great service. You get this little, I think, kind of off-white or ivory-covered neat little box in the mail as opposed to going to a Rite Aid and asking you know, the NSA to come in with a special key to unlock the shaving equipment, you know, which they've put behind lock and key because it's so preposterously overpriced. It's like going, you know, Julie, have you ever looked for saffron in a supermarket? You're like, where's the saffron? Where's the saffron? And finally, you have to go see the store manager. He's like, okay, I'll take you back to the saffron room. And it's like the, you know, it's like the opening of Get Smart, like behind eight you know, vaults, ancient vaults, you finally find that little piece of saffron because it's actually like $2,000 a pound or something. You get your little filament of saffron. Uh, Anyway, this is a long-winded way of saying (laughs) razors are overpriced, Julia, and Harry's has broken the Da Vinci code of, of razor pricing, and they delivered to my face, to my rough nasty middle-aged face they've delivered youthful smoothness for a reasonable price i can only imagine that vin diesel uses these to maintain his uh his caramel (laughs) dome as well 
Um, their starter is just $15. In fact, that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. And as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. You get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. So go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the promo code CULTURE with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter coupon code CULTURE at checkout for $5 off. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. The Nerd Hunter is an article by the journalist Stephen Roderick for the April 6th issue of The New Yorker. It tells the quite captivating story and backstory of one Allison Jones, a casting director who some believe has quietly remade American comedy, and I think as the article insinuates in a very intelligent way in her own image. As the director Paul Feig has said, years from now, she will be recognized as having changed the face of comedy as much as any comedy filmmaker. All the best comedy people have come through her or from her. And as the article goes on to point out, as recently as the 1980s, even up through the 1990s, I would say, smart comedies featured misfits who were, who were nonetheless gorgeous, but through her casting, Jones has introduced actors who more closely resemble people in real life. I'm quoting from the article there. Julia, this was a, a fascinating story. You were the one who um, promoted it to us. What attracted you to it? Well, I just wanted an excuse to talk to you guys about casting more generally. I just think, I mean, we've discussed the fact that there's no Academy Award for casting and that it's sort of a mysterious art. I mean, I think for people like the three of us who, you know, were students of texts, of sort of written texts first, when I see a movie, it's easiest for me to analyze story, story structure, dialogue. I feel like my visual senses are a little bit behind my word senses and then the the way to understand acting and what an actor brings to a role and how they create a role to me is like a, a third level of mystery that I feel almost unable to apprehend somehow when I watch films, unless we're talking about Vin Diesel. Um, so mm-hmm. I just thought I thought it would be neat to kind of focus on a profile of a casting director and talk a little bit about what this particular woman has accomplished or what the, the article purports that she's accomplished, but also to just to think a little bit about how actors can animate the roles that they're in. Dana, is this, I mean, obviously you've seen countless movies and countless more than we have over the years. Is this something that has occurred to you previously, that that there's something about the X factor of the mix of talents that come together to make a movie and, and, and one of the important filters to get to that ensemble is, is a casting director? Yeah, to me, the casting director seems like really almost a, a right hand of the director. I mean, it's you, it's hard to imagine most great movies in film history without the exact casting they had, right? I mean, sort of what makes a movie great, The Graduate, if you think about it. You know, can you picture anyone else in those roles? And what was it that was so fresh about the combination of Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft in those two roles? And that's that's just a, it's one that came to mind, I think, because of the great HBO documentary Casting By, which I wanted us to talk about when it came out on HBO. I'm sure it's still available on HBO Go and so forth. But it talked a lot about Marion Dougherty, who's mentioned in this article, who was this legendary casting agent in kind of mid-century. She she cast James Dean. She sort of helped to discover him. She discovered Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino and John Voight and Glenn Close and just so many very remarkable faces who were very unusual for the time. And sort of like this woman, Allison Jones, who's cast a lot of the Apatow comedies and discovered all the Freaks and Geeks kids and things like that, Marion Dougherty was somebody who had a different kind of eye. You know, she didn't mm-hmm. expect actors to have sort of types in the way that they had in the great studio era where it was like um, central casting, you know, like go get the guy who plays the mailman. He's always good as a mailman. It was sort of more about finding these offbeat types who didn't quite fit anywhere and writing roles around them. Yeah, I agree. I think the subplot of this, I think, very fine article is how much of contemporary comedy derives from freaks and geeks. The Apatow School, but all of its many offshoots really originated in that show and how that show was cast really set that template. And then the second thing is that this this woman has a, I mean, what makes the portrait of her, and we don't have to focus on her too much longer, but what makes the focus, the article's focus on her so interesting is that she herself has a special sympathy for nerds, that in fact her whole method, her whole way of being in the world informs her method and her eye. She herself is a kind of wallflower and an oddity. She attempted to be a screenwriter and a sitcom writer and kind of burned out on that with no success at all. And she lives as this kind of semi-invisible being, which is also what a casting director is, right? Someone whose hand really recedes from the scene once it's done its work and never really gets full credit. But she played this incredibly central role. So she's kind of put her own soul into these movies by saying this incredibly unlikely weirdo 
belongs at the center of a movie, right? Which is the torch that got picked up by Apatow and then American Comedy and has elevated Seth Rogen and others like him to huge stardom. I thought that was fascinating. The other story I thought was really fascinating, and Julia, I think you alluded to this a little bit, is that, and, and Dana as well, the studio system broke apart. Uh, and instead of having a bunch of people under contract who are interchangeable parts, uh, you had a kind of radical free agency and you were able to go far afield and find new people in new faces. And it really brings home how unlikely some of the most iconic movie stars have always been from Bogart on. I mean, it precedes the collapse of the studio system, but it really got going in the 60s and 70s with that generation of Hoffman, Elliot Gould, and then the you know the really great Godfather actors. It made me see filmmaking, which we all know is so collaborative. We've all read dozens of pay-ends to the editor or editrix and, and the role that they play in really assembling the movie. Um, and this was just a totally unexpected new source for thinking about film as a collaborative medium. And the thing that is always interesting to me about the casting process is that you're she's someone who claims to be the person you forget you met, and she's trying to find these people who are unforgettable, right? Like she's looking for people who can channel their own instinctive themness in a way that will be indelible on screen and will feel somehow authentic. And the act of characterological imagination that that takes to me is just so intriguing. I mean, part of my interest in this may lie in the fact that my husband works in television and sometimes has to review auditions as they're casting stuff. And, you know, it's all digital now. It's all it's basically just like a private YouTube channel where you watch like person after person after person say, you know, the line after line after line. And with every successive performance, you know, there's sort of two thirds of them. You just think, ah, forget it. Like, not this person. But then for the ones in the top third, you think, oh, it could be that kind of show or it could be this kind of show. I mean, it's like your, your mind boggles at the number of possible versions of the thing that you're working on that could exist in the world. And it makes you realize how unlikely, I mean, whatever, even the unlikeliness of Vin Diesel and Jordana Brewster being siblings in the, you know, somebody somewhere decided that that was plausible. Maybe it was more plausible uh, with their 2001 bodies and selves than with their current bodies and selves. I know. And the other thing is that stardom seems so inevitable once it's happened and so improbable before it's happened right and it's interesting to remember that right right so like i had occasion to read a biography of humphrey bogart bogart is short swarthy unshaven and sebaceous man who speaks with a congenital lisp and spit formed because of this birth defect on the corner of his mouth and he is arguably the single greatest male movie icon in the history of the medium. I mean, he's certainly in the argument. And why did that happen? And it took a totally random confluence of circumstances and, you know, a casting director, but also a, a unit production manager and a studio head finally being talked into believing this total improbability. And then something chemical happens with the mass audience and all of a sudden you wouldn't you can't imagine american movies without humphrey bargard as the tough guy like you know and it's happened over and over and over again and it's just it's so interesting to think about how an individual talent from among so many right you who knows who in the darwinian struggle of the 20 people your husband looks at on tape who who knows who among those might have when it comes down to a coin flip you know how many Humphrey Bogarts kind of lie along the lie on the discard pile? No, it's, it's just right. It's been interesting over the past few years to see some folks who didn't get roles on shows that my husband has worked on like turn up in other productions, and and you know they were often ones you thought, oh that that guy could be good for something someday. There's also the phenomenon of getting roles but never quite getting the right kind of role, and then sort of finding who you are as an actor, which sort of happened for Bogart, right, Steve? I mean, he was playing like young romantic leads, and that didn't work, and he was playing sort of like nervous high guns, And it wasn't until he started playing, he sort of aged into the role of the Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe style, tough detective right. that that he found his place. And I would argue that someone like Matthew McConaughey is sort of like that, right? I mean, he sort of lazed around being a pretty boy for years at the movies before he found his current, you know, bizarre place in the in the casting universe. Yeah, um, I love also that the article stresses this overall style of anti-cynicism that she appears to be very attracted to, like a, a, a style of self-presentation that's 
actually not self-conscious or overly performative. And that really did work its way into the comedy sensibility of American movies. Okay, anyway, well, the piece is great. It's called The Nerd Hunter. It's by Stephen Roderick for the April 6th issue of The New Yorker. Check it out. Let us know what you thought. Um, we're at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? This week, we are also sponsored this week, Steve, by the epic BET miniseries, The Book of Negroes, which is now available on DVD in a special three-disc package. Based on the critically acclaimed novel by Lawrence Hill, The Book of Negroes is a universal story of loss, courage, and triumph, starring Anjanou Ellis, Lyric Bent, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Lou Gossett Jr. Own it today on DVD. All right, Steve, what's next? All right. Thanks, Julia. All right. Moving on. To write his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, the author John Ronson spent three years interviewing people whose lives were altered or in some cases really even ruined by a public shaming via the Internet, principally via the Internet. The centerpiece of the book is the story of Justine Sacco, a PR executive who, right before boarding a flight to South Africa from the United States, tweeted out, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. She tweeted this out to her something like 170 Twitter followers. Over the course of her 11-hour flight, her tweet ended up going viral. And by the time she landed, she discovered that she was number one worldwide trending on Twitter. Julia, this is a fascinating case study for so many reasons because her tweet was effectively construed as literal. She has since said that it was a kind of satire or a savvy jab at the notion of white privilege. Nonetheless, it was picked up with a kind of malicious glee, taken viral, and appears to have completely ravaged this woman's life. What did you make of John Ronson's depiction of this travesty? And what do you make of his thesis that there's something about the internet and contemporary internet culture that makes us prone to a kind of violent rhetorical reprisal? I, in my technophilic way resist the notion that somehow the internet has become a horrible public square for shaming and the ruination of people's lives. I guess in part because I feel like maybe don't tweet jokes that aren't well-formed enough to have their valence clear. I don't know. I guess that's me blaming the victim and saying she was asking for it by tweeting something that was misinterpretable in that way. But I don't know. I resist this idea. I mean, it's there are plenty of examples. It's true. It's true that the way the Internet works now, it is very easy for a set of people to focus all of their attention on any one target of opprobrium. And whether that target is a public and professional figure like Jonah Lehrer or someone who seems to treat their Twitter account as like a side project for friends like Justine Sacco or any of the other people who've been shamed in this way. I don't know. I, I just, I'm not wringing my hands over this lamentable turn in our culture. Am I, am mm-hmm. I cold hearted? No, no, no. I don't think so. I, I, but Dana, it seems to me in addition to all of the larger issues about internet culture and you know how human nature interacts with it, there's simply the issue of proportionality. If you believe that this woman is a PR executive, she should not, her, it's her job to not be tone deaf. That is her job on behalf of other people to pick the exactly right words to convey a a state of affairs or an affect or whatever. And in that regard, she failed dismally. You could argue that Barry Diller, for whom she worked, was completely, or his company, was completely within its right to fire her. And in some ways, the response to her tweet was proportional. Similarly, you know, Ronson's book includes a long defense of Joan Allaire, the disgraced journalist who committed many sins that Ronson seems to want to distill down to simply having misquoted or fabricated quotes by Bob Dylan in order to push this thesis that what Lair was subjected to was a disproportionately schadenfreude-laced act of public shaming. Doesn't that make the argument to you seem somewhat tenuous? I mean, Dan Engber wrote a very, very intelligent uh, rebuke to Ronson's thesis about Lair. Yeah, the two cases seem very, very different to me in terms of are we going to imagine, you know, social media as some sort of modern update of the Puritan pillory, which is essentially what John Ronson is suggesting. I feel like Sacco was more unfairly pilloried than Jonah Lehrer was. And unlike Julia, I mean, I will stand up for I, I don't think that writing one dumb, ironic joke that was misperceived as not being ironic by a bunch of people who don't know you should result in 
having your name smeared and losing your job and possibly having trouble ever working in that field again. I think that really was an extreme punishment for that woman and that there have been way bigger indiscretions that have gone less punished than that just because of, you know, whatever um, viral wave happened to catch that that particular tweet. The case of Jonah Lehrer is completely different because, I mean, at least to look at the way Dan Engber breaks down Jonah Lehrer's journalistic career, there really has been a long pattern of deceiving his editors, plagiarizing himself, which Dan Engber admits is a lesser crime, but not only fabricating these Bob Dylan quotes, but time and again sort of fudging the details to make his stories more dramatic and then trying to get off the hook for that. And it also sort of seems like Jonah Lehrer is, unlike Justine Sacco, really sort of putting himself out there now for public redemption in a way and sort of saying, redeem me, this is all I did. And all of that still sort of seems to me like it's part of the same slick willy behavior that sort of got him his his New Yorker gig in the first place. Right. The exact thing that Dan accuses him and that that he was found to have done in his journalism, which is kind of like bending the details of particular anecdotes to support larger themes, he now seems to want to do and seems to be aided by John Ronson in doing with the tales of his own life. So instead of really detailing all of the things that he did wrong, it's like, let's just focus on one version of what I did wrong, which then bends nicely toward this story of just how the internet really excoriated me for this one grievous mistake, which I deeply regret, and my long road to redemption and recovery. Yeah. I mean, he's reappearing as exactly the same sociopath who he was when he committed these offenses. And, you know, that part of me that is working itself up into a, you know, rage about it, I don't think is to be automatically discredited. Like, the, if if the only thing... I mean, look, if journalism as a guild can't police itself to keep the journal errors of this world out of its uh, pages, then maybe public shame is, is what's necessary. I mean, I see two sides to this argument. On the one hand, in the classic book, Discipline and Punish, Foucault pointed out something very interesting about public executions vis-a-vis public crowds. When punishment was done to the physical body in public, it was against someone who'd committed what was considered a grievous crime against you know, the community. And there was an enormous amount of initial bloodlust to see the person physically damaged or killed in public. But what they also discovered is that in the act of actually doing that, at a certain moment, the crowd's sympathies shifted in favor of the criminal and against the public authority that was committing the execution. And his point was that there's a kind of natural sympathy against power and towards actual victims that just seems to be part of uh, human nature that turns public schadenfreude around. And what's, I think, slightly sinister about the internet is that because it's a very communitarian medium, but also radically disembodied, you have the first part of the crowd response to someone who's violated norms in a way that many people and perhaps virally find offensive. But you don't have the second part, which is that you actually see them and develop a kind of human sympathy for what they're going through. And in that sense, I think Ronson's work is an important public service and someone needed to come out and say it. But the other part of the argument that I don't buy is that Twitter, and you could argue all of Jonah Lehrer's work, are kind of an approval phishing scheme in the PH sense of the word phishing, right? There's a sense that this medium exists for me to derive a kind of public or semi-public approval from. And I say, I throw something out on Twitter or I publish something in the New Yorker or wherever, and I expect approval. Like, I, I want this reflexive approval. But the fact is what you're doing is essentially public and is always in danger of being greeted with disapproval. And the the sort of shock and dismay that this medium from which you are desperately asking for viral approval can also throw back to you viral disapproval. The idea that that's somehow shocking or an indictment of the medium to me is just insane. People have shaken hands with the digital devil and they have to accept both sides of that bargain. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think your point about the internet and public shaming is really interesting, although I also think there has been this wave of stories from people who, you know, misbehaved and were excoriated for it online that does tell their stories. I do think the human instinct for sympathy towards people who've been born the brunt of this kind of attention has happened. I mean, we at Slate, as part of our big outreach package last year, published an essay by Andrew Goldman about what it was like to commit a big mistake online and see what the response was to that. You know, there is this John Ronson book sort of exploring these stories, which I think is important work. You know, there have been a couple other investigations into the Justine Sacco story. I think your point about the Guild, Steve, I think you're right, Dana, that, that she had less of a pattern of behavior. On the other hand, I do think there is a sense of like, 
Right. Being in PR is actually about knowing how to present yourself publicly. Like that is the primary skill you were selling. And that was a, a public demonstration of a lack of skill in that regard. Probably not one that outweighs all of the rest that she'd accomplished in her professional life, but it's, doesn't, it's not totally unrelated. I don't know. I mean, I think you're right that the internet is disembodied, Steve, but it also in some ways brings you closer to so many other humans. Like, I feel like in the pre-internet age, I just wouldn't know about any of these people to shame them or feel sympathy for them. So it, it, to me, it compounds all of the emotions around this, not just the negative ones. Okay, the article appeared in the February 12th, 2015 New York Times Magazine. It's called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. And John Ronson's book is called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Curious to hear our listeners' stories and how they feel about digital selves and public shaming. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know what you think. All right, well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to do a Steve this time and go double endorsement. But um, but first one is really short, and I already mentioned it. It's the documentary casting by the HBO documentary, um, which is only 90 minutes long and is a really fascinating overview of sort of casting in Hollywood from mid-century through about the 80s or so. Um, and you can find that on HBO Go. And my second very short and silly endorsement, which anyone who follows me on Twitter may have seen me ranting about yesterday, is that I'm endorsing the scuttling crab emoji within Gmail. <laughs> do you know about this, Julia? <laughs> I do know about this. I just discovered it yesterday. So I have seen this thing online before, but I never knew where it came from. I assumed it was some like specialized emoji that you had to buy. And, you know, I'm not going to go buy a set of emojis. But it's this cute little blocky crab who scuttles back and forth and his eye- little stalks on eyeballs blink. And, uh, and he's within Gmail. So if you have a Gmail account, just go to the smiley face icon. Your emojis will pop up, very different from iPhone emojis. And the, one of the ones on the very first page is the little sideways scuttling crab who, maybe it's because my astrological sign is cancer, so I'm a crab, but I've always loved crabs. And the fact that there's a cute scuttling crab at my fingertips has changed the way I email. I feel like I have to show that emoji to my children in the manner of raising young children where you come up with your own bizarre call and response habits that make no sense. Whenever we see a crab in a children's book, we go pinch, pinch, and we, we <laughs> grab them on their little fat thighs and give them a little pinch, and then they go pinch, pinch. So the, like in the same way that the cow says moo, the crab says pinch, pinch in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe an animated pinch, pincher. And like lobsters don't, you know, there's no logic, but the crabs, the crabs <laughs> pinch, pinch. All right, Julia, what do you got? Um, my recommendation today is related to our plus segment, We talked about Better Call Saul after the first couple episodes aired, but I wanted to divulge to our listeners that I have stuck with it in a time in my life when I do not follow in real time nearly as many TV shows as I used to. I think Better Call Saul turned out to be a really amazing season of television. It's getting so good. I just, I think it's extraordinary. So if you didn't check it out because you were perturbed by its derivativeness or if you stopped watching after the first couple episodes because they seemed a little bit too full of like, oh, hey, it's Tuco. Oh, hey, it's Mike. It has evolved into a really fascinating moral examination of Jimmy McGill, as the Saul character is called in this season of the show. And in some ways, like a real moral flip side of Breaking Bad. If Breaking Bad was about a fundamentally impotent and nebbishy man learning how to do and using that force of doing to do evil, this is a show about a sort of flip side figure, a fundamentally efficacious man, a guy who's able to talk his way into or out of anything. Against all odds, he's able to bend the world to his way in a lot of situations. And the temptation to use that force for evil and his desire to use it for good instead is like really interesting and morally and psychologically complex and fascinating and heartbreaking. Um, And funny. And Bob Odenkirk is just creating such an extraordinary character. Even if you already liked him as Saul Goodman, I feel like he's taking him down all kinds of new roads. It's the show I'm most excited about on television right now. And so unalloyed, unabashed endorsement for Better Call Saul. I'm so I'm so psyched to catch up with it. That guy is just doing Nobel quality work, Odenkirk. There, there should be a Nobel acting prize. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> he should be the first recipient. Um, all right, well, so for my endorsement, I want to make a historic announcement, which is that the War of the Rosens is finally over. That is the war between the Jody Rosens of the world and the Steve Metcalfs of the world over music and pop music in particular. That is between simpering, singer-songwriter, fragile, inner-directed, soulful people like such as myself, you know, who like, uh, you know, Nancy Boy rock and roll like Bell and Sebastian and Nick Drake 
and Jody Rosen, you know, soulless, zombified, completely vacuous sellouts who like factory product rock and roll and pop. After um, that neutral setup, we will uh, move yes, on I'm, to, gl- I'm glad well, that, that this, <laughs> this even-handed <laughs> truce, rec- truce accord. After that setup, you'll be surprised to know that Jody Rosen has won the war in a cakewalk, what's called in the sports world a cakewalk. It's not even close. Because as my daughter Kate said, the my nine-year-old daughter Kate said the other morning, she said, you know how you listen to a song a billion times and that makes you hate it? Well, that doesn't happen with sugar. You're just adjusting to its greatness. This is a direct quote from my daughter Kate over the song Sugar by Maroon 5, which is the <laughs> single greatest, which is the single... It is the it is the apex of Western civilization. We can we can bury it in the we can bury it in the time capsule. We can shoot it out into space, and the rest of us can just pack up and go home because it is the distillate of everything that is decent and pleasurable about human existence. Does Jody even like Maroon Five? He fucking better. After I'm not all sure that. even I like Maroon Five. I here's that my theory. Song is so good. That song we we play it every morning when we wake up. We play it every night before we go to sleep. I am telling you, Sugar by Maroon Five, The War of the Roses. Here's my Springsteen records are in the dumpster. (laughs) Here's my bomb throwing theory. The reason I don't like Maroon Five is because Adam Levine has the plaintive soul of a singer songwriter in in a in a pop carapace. Oh no! Yes, exactly. It's Hegelian. It's it's the (laughs) thesis antithesis. Absolute truth. All right, maybe our next Slate Plus segment will be Jody Rosen coming on to actually listen. Willie. We'll do a listening session of this song. Um, oh, excellent. I love it. All right. Great. War's over. Hello. Hallelujah. Um, kiss top a, one. Kiss a nurse on the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Julia, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about... Kiss, kiss a nurse on the street is pretty good. <laughs> Uh, I was going to give you a third of a thank you for watching a third of <laughs> that movie, but... Yeah, then. <laughs> oh, my God in heaven. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers, of course, is the executive producer and godhead of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Sugar. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> See you next week. 